I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. In today's show, we turn our attention to the 2016 presidential campaign. What are the Democratic and Republican candidates saying about the Constitution? And what should we the people make of their ideas? There's lots to discuss, so we'll jump right in. Here to provide us with context and commentary are two members of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. And it's always great to have them as returning guests of We the People. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Michael Dorff is the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell University Law School. Gentlemen, welcome back, and let's get right into it. Uh, one of the interesting proposed constitutional amendments is the Madison Amendment, which is supported by Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, the language, which was initially proposed by Ronald Reagan's Justice Department in the 1980s, uh, says the following, quote, the Congress, on application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, which all contain an identical amendment, shall call a convention solely to decide whether to propose that specific amendments to the states, which, if proposed, shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of the Constitution when ratified pursuant to Article 5. Uh, Mike, tell us about the context of that amendment. Uh, what is it trying to achieve, and uh, how does that fit in in terms of a similar proposal in history? The Probably the best place to start would be the existing amendment procedure, which is set forth in Article 5, and that allows for constitutional amendments either when proposed by two-thirds of each House or when proposed by conventions. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, or, or, that, I'm sorry. Let me back up on that. I'm going to take that again. Uh, that the two-thirds of the of, of each house can propose constitutional amendment, and it can be ratified either by uh, the uh, state legislatures or by state ratification uh, conventions. The alternative to that is that two-thirds of the legislatures of the st several states can call for a convention for proposing amendments. So what this amendment proposes to do is to add a third mode of proposing constitutional amendments, which would enable state legislatures to call for particular amendments. The proponents of the so-called Madison Amendment argue that the problem with the existing method for states to propose amendments is that they have to propose an entire convention at which everything would be up for grabs, and therefore they're intimidated from doing so because if they have one specific idea, say a balanced budget amendment, if they get a convention going, then the convention could go rogue, somewhat like the original convention of 1787, which was uh, supposed to just consider amendments to the Articles of Confederation, but ended up proposing an entire new constitution. So the idea is to give the states more power to propose amendments, by removing this disincentive of the possibility of a rogue convention. Wonderful. Thanks so much for that introduction. Ilya, you are in Savannah, and you've just discovered uh, what you tweeted yesterday is Justice Scalia's favorite beer called Jiggery Pokery. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, what is it it's like? Actually, it's actually pretty good. It's a, a hoppy <laughs> Belgian-style ale. Um, 
Uh, it's courtesy of uh, Moon Brewing Company in Savannah, and clearly the owner is a lawyer, or at least uh, uh, clever in some way. There's references to uh, applesauce in the description and things like this. Um, but it's, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I, I hope it's available on tap in D.C. soon. Wow. Well, so do, so do I. Um, um, until it is, let me ask you about the Madison Amendment. Mike gave a great introduction, and the uh, MadisonAmendment.com website says that the amendment gives states, quote, the right Madison argued in the Federalist Papers they already have to limit a convention they call for to just the amendment they propose. That's Madison in Federalist 43. Do you agree that James Madison would have wanted the states to be able to propose amendments limited to particular topics? Well, I think there's pretty good evidence that the framers thought that you could have limited conventions. Uh, after all, they had just gone through uh, a constitutional, not an amendment convention, that, as you described, sort of went beyond uh, its charge. Uh, and uh, I don't see any reason why, uh, in the way that the convention is called, uh, that you couldn't put in all sorts of safeguards. And, and I should say, for that matter, that I'm involved with an effort called the Compact for America, uh, which is an attempt to amend the Constitution via interstate compact, a different kind of elegant turnkey approach. Uh, but regardless, uh, I think the whole fear of runaway conventions is overblown, given that uh, whatever, you know, pick your parade of horribles that could come out of this convention, uh, if that could be ratified by three-quarters of uh, state uh, 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 legislatures, well, then we've already lost the candle and might as well go into something else. But nevertheless, as, as I said, uh, I think you can limit a convention. Uh, and this is further a, a hypothetical, this, this Madison Amendment, because, um, gosh, why am I going to say it? must be the jiggery poker. <laughs> Just wait until five. Uh, this, wait until five. It's, everything will be fine. This Madison Amendment is, is further unnecessary um, because historically when states have proposed uh, conventions or amendments, once there's enough of a critical mass, Congress jumps in front of the issue and proposes their own, uh, and away we go. That's why all the constitutional amendments we have uh, technically originated in Congress, even though many of them began with grassroots movements uh, and calls from the state. So it's an interesting idea. Uh, there are actually other types of Madison amendments that have been proposed in terms of states taking back power, possibly repealing federal laws or regulations. Uh, Randy Barnett has a, a federalism bill of rights that has a, a kind of Madisonian tinge in terms of rebalancing federalism. So uh, there, there are some interesting ideas that I think uh, could be fruitful in terms of giving the state more power in our governance. But this particular issue about the proposal of amendments, I think, is uh, possibly the least urgent one. Um, interesting. Mike, let's take another beat on this. During the progressive era, it was liberals who were foes of the courts and people from Teddy Roosevelt uh, on proposed to be able to override Supreme Court decisions by two-thirds votes of Congress. Now it seems to be conservatives who are most eager to make the Constitution easier to amend and who are also proposing the bulk of constitutional amendments. Why is that? Well, so first, uh, I think that it's gone back and forth uh, historically over time. Barry Friedman's uh, wonderful book, The Will of the People, talks about how uh, People tend to get upset with the Supreme Court uh, based on whether they agree with its rulings or not. And we are now in the peculiar era in which, depending on the issue, liberals and conservatives are both very uh, upset with the Supreme Court for uh, what it's doing. So uh, it's been the case roughly since the Warren Court 
that conservatives have complained more loudly about what the Supreme Court is doing. Uh, but liberals also complain about that, too, and from time to time they organize uh, in the form, with the form of constitutional amendments. And we can talk about some of those proposals a little bit later on in, in this discussion. Uh, I do think that uh, it's undoubtedly true that we have a very difficult-to-amend constitution by international standards and even by the standards of the United States. If you look at state constitutions, they tend to be much easier to amend uh, and so the question is, what happened as a consequence of that? Well, uh, Tom Ginsburg at the University of Chicago has done some very interesting work uh, looking at the survival of national constitutions. And we, have, of course, have a very long-lived one. Uh, so the question is, how does it survive if it's so difficult to amend? The answer is flexible interpretation, uh, which in turn drives the uh, desire for amendments because one person's flexible interpretation is another person's usurpation. And so there's, a, there's this kind of elaborate connection between the difficulty of amendment, the mode of interpretation by the courts, and then in turn the perceived need for amendments. Uh, that is great. Uh, Ilya, give us more detail about some of the alternative amendment procedures that you described from Randy Barnett's Federalism Bill of Rights to this interstate compact. How are conservatives trying to amend this extremely difficult-to-amend Constitution? Well, first of all, it's not really supposed to be so difficult. We think of it now as being the sacrosanct, sacrosanct thing that we can only amend to um, give women the vote uh, or uh, change uh, the, the, the rules of succession for the president, some of these just incredibly weighty uh, uh, issues. Um, but it didn't used to be that way, and things really changed during the Progressive Era and New Deal, especially during the New Deal when the Constitution began being amended uh, 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 implicitly without actually formally amending the Constitution. Um, and there were big debates uh, among the New Dealers and FDR uh, ramming through legislation through Congress that uh, all concerned knew had some constitutional defects, and then the Supreme Court eventually uh, letting them have their way. And so that's why we have ever more expansive, facially unconstitutional government uh, without uh, any uh, uh, new amendments, the, the living constitution, uh, as it were. But the, the alternative methods, um, uh, you know, Randy Barnett doesn't, I think, really propose alternative methods. He just talks about different ways in which if enough states vote, uh, they can repeal regulations or laws. Uh, or, for that matter, call uh, for new amendment conventions. Perhaps he subsumes the, the Madison Amendment. I, have, I haven't talked to him or read his most recent writings on it. I think he first proposed this uh, six, seven years ago. Uh, the compact is, is interesting. Uh, you could, in theory, use the compact for any type of amendment. It's currently being focused on uh, balanced budget. But the idea is uh, if enough states, once enough states join, uh, the requisite number to ratify, in fact, as the, the three quarters, um, you, you, the, the legislatures only have to pass that one law, which is based on contingencies. That is, uh, they act once, and then everything is already pre-called, uh, pre-ratified. Uh, the delegate selection process is spelled out. The procedures of the convention are spelled out. Very little discretion. Congress only has to act once, because the way that interstate compacts work is that Congress has to approve them. Uh, but again, this is, I think, very high theoretical. It's, it's very uh, interesting from an academic perspective. But if currently there are, uh, I think we're up to five states that have joined uh, the Compact for America, once it gets up to 
uh, if it gets up hopefully to something like 15 or 20, um, then I think Congress will sit up and start getting ahead of this process and be proposing its own amendments, because that's simply the way that it's gone historically. Congress wants to control the process. Great. Well, now let's get into the specific amendments that the candidates have proposed. Uh, several of the Republican candidates have proposed or supported an amendment that would end the 14th Amendment's grant of birthright citizenship, that is, citizens uh, born uh, in, in the United States. Um, Mike, can you give a summary of the debate over birthright citizenship? What does the 14th Amendment say? And would it be, in fact, necessary to amend this uh, amendment in order to end birthright citizenship? So the... Fourteenth Amendment begins in Section One by stating that uh, I'm paraphrasing now: all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction uh, thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside, uh, and that's a uh, direct repudiation of the Dred Scott decision, which had held that African Americans uh, were not and could not be citizens. Uh, but the language, of course, is broader than uh, referring to the freedmen. Uh, it says all persons. Uh, so the question is, does that apply to the children of undocumented immigrants? Uh, the assumption for quite some time now has been yes, uh, because of language in an 1898 case from the Supreme Court, United States against Wong Kim Ark. Uh, a, a federal uh, executive official tried to exclude Wong Kim Ark from re-entering the country after he had left, pursuant to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, but Wong Kim Ark had been born in the United States uh, to uh, parents uh, who were not citizens but were lawfully present in the United States. Uh, and the government argued, well, he's not a, not a citizen. Uh, and Wong Kim Ark prevailed, uh, even though his parents were subjects of the Emperor of China, uh, the court said, yeah, but he was born here, and that satisfies Section 1. The big question in Wong Kim Ark was, what does that qualification subject to the jurisdiction thereof mean? Uh, and the court construed it pretty narrowly to refer to um, uh, ambassadors and consular staff, right, because you think of a foreign embassy as a kind of extraterritorial enclave, um, and to uh, the uh, invading armies, uh, people born to uh, women accompanying uh, invading armies were thought to be not subject to the jurisdiction thereof. And that's a, those are pretty narrow exceptions. Uh, and so the argument is those exceptions are not implicated in the case of children born to undocumented immigrants. So they are, are uh, citizens. Now, the argument on the other side says, well, yeah, that's true. That's Juan Kimark. But there's also an 1884 case, Elk against Wilkins, uh, which said that um, many Native Americans are not entitled to birthright citizenship, and Wong Kim Ark doesn't overrule that. So it's not the case that the exception only applies to those two categories. And so some people say that the uh, birthright citizenship does not apply to children of undocumented immigrants. I think that's a, an incorrect reading of the cases, but it's not an outlandishly incorrect reading. The case law doesn't definitively answer that question. So it's conceivable that the courts could say that even without a constitutional amendment, children born to undocumented immigrants are not citizens. Uh, if the courts say otherwise and follow the broad language of Wong Kim Ark, then it would require a constitutional amendment uh, to change that. Thank you for that summary. We did have a great podcast on the birthright citizenship question uh, not long ago. 
And we have this uh, statement from uh, Donald Trump on August 19th, quote, many of the great scholars say that anchor babies are not covered by the 14th Amendment. Ilya, you are a great scholar. Do you agree uh, or not that anchor babies are covered by the 14th Amendment? So the, the legal question, that is, whether uh, birthright citizenship is a constitutional right, uh, is a close one. Um, in fact, uh, lots of conservatives and libertarians disagree with each other. There was a, a last week an exchange between uh, John Yu defending constitutional birthright citizenship against John Eastman, um, who uh, have written extensively, uh, uh, you know, are generally in agreement on, on, on most issues, for example. Um, uh, the, the, the problem is that at the time of the 14th Amendment's ratification in 1868, there was no such thing as illegal immigration, nor was there tourism for that matter. Sure, there were diplomats, there were invading armies, and there were Native Americans, uh, but there weren't these other categories that people scratch their head about or about which the policy debate is raging. Now, as far as the policy debate is concerned, um, my colleague Alex Narasta, who does immigration policy work for uh, for Cato has uh, this and last week with the uh, inflammation of the, 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 the Donald Trump has put in on this issue, has done a lot of work on uh, why birthright citizenship is a good thing, why it doesn't leave, but why the whole anchor baby phenomenon, regardless of what you think of the, the term, whether it's politically incorrect or whatnot, isn't really a thing because, for example, those so-called anchor babies can't sponsor their parents until they're 21 and things like that. Uh, so I think the policy question is, uh, for both economic uh, and moral reasons, uh, uh, less close for me. Um, but the legal question is, is an open one about whether you would need a constitutional amendment or just change the current law that says that uh, 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 anyone born here, other than kids of diplomats, uh, who after all have immunity, they're not subject to full jurisdiction of America, uh, or invading armies, we haven't had that. Uh, or uh, uh, Indian tribes, although there is a federal statute now that gives Native Americans birthright citizenship as well, going back to 1924. So um, the, the Republican candidates are, are split on the issue. By my count, I had one of my research assistants uh, kind of try to figure this out. By my count, we have supporting birthright citizenship uh, Jeb Bush, Carlos Fiorina, Jim Gilmore, Marco Rubio, George Pataki, uh, John Kasich, Mike Huckabee. Uh, and against it are Trump, Ben Carson, Rick Santorum, Bobby Jindal, Lindsey Graham, and Ted Cruz. So uh, you know, who knows? I think this is kind of uh, 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 spun off of Donald Trump's whole uh, immigration, uh, uh, putting immigration front and center in this um, uh, political campaign. Uh, but I think it's really much more of a sideshow than the, than the important uh, uh, immigration policy matters that should be discussed. That's very helpful. I just want one more beat on this so I understand the text and history clearly, and along with our listeners. Mike, would the framers of the 14th Amendment have favored birthright citizenship for so-called anchor babies or not? Well, I think that uh, Ilya's exegesis tells you that we don't know the answer to that question. There certainly was in the framers' generation uh, nativism and uh, some of the people who we think of as heroes of uh, civil rights uh, were, in fact, very hostile to um, East Asian, largely Chinese, immigration. So in the very same famous dissent in Plessy against Ferguson by the first Justice Harlan, admittedly a generation after the adoption of the 
14th Amendment, uh, that, you know, Harlan has this beautiful language, our Constitution is colorblind, etc. But he also then has some very nasty things to say about Chinese immigrants. Uh, and so it's quite possible, I think, that if you uh, posed the question to them, that some of the framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment would have wanted uh, to exclude not just the children of uh, unlawful uh, immigrants, but children of people who are here lawfully. But of course, that's not the language that they wrote. The language that they wrote says all persons. And uh, so, um, as in many things, even if we are going to take a sort of originalist approach, we have to ask what did the language mean, and not necessarily what would people have wanted if they had faced the question that we now face. Great. Yo-Yo, you did give us a very balanced and helpful exegesis. Do you agree with Mike that there may be a clash between the text and the original understanding of the 14th Amendment on this question? Well, there might be a clash between the uh, the text, the original public meaning, and the and the intent of at least some of the framers. We know this is part of the problem of trying to figure out what the intent of, of any legislation or constitutional provision is, because uh, it's passed by many people who might have uh, many different... Uh, uh, opinions and uh, uh, the the key words aren't all persons. It's subject to the jurisdiction thereof. What does that mean? Uh, as I said, ambassadors or foreign armies are subject to different kinds uh, of laws, not fully under our jurisdiction. Um, what about illegal um, uh, immigrants? Uh, they are subject to criminal laws and traffic laws. They don't have diplomatic immunity, etc. But do they have allegiance to the sovereign, to the United States government? Does that matter? What about their kids? Uh, who have never lived in any other foreign country. Uh, does that analysis change? Uh, there's really, you know, we can go back and forth and talk and around and around it. Wong Kim Ark, I think, is, is right uh, as a matter of uh, legal uh, immigrants. I think it's a, it's a, it's a lot clearer uh, in that respect, again, regardless of what any particular framer uh, uh, intended. Um, uh, with illegal immigrants, uh, we don't know. This is simply a situation that uh, was not at all foreseen uh, uh, until kind of the, the modern age of, of immigration restrictions. Great. All right. Well, let us turn from the Republican to the Democratic candidates. Uh, and uh, two of them, uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, have supported an amendment to overturn the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, in particular, has proposed a Democracy for the People amendment. I'm going to read it. It's a little long, but I think the text matters and listeners can check it out on Bernie Sanders' website, www.sanders.senate.gov. Here's what it says. Section 1, whereas the right to vote in public elections belongs only to natural persons as citizens of the United States, so shall the ability to make contributions and expenditures to influence the outcome of public elections belong only to natural persons in accordance with this article. Section 2, Nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to restrict the power of Congress and the states to protect the integrity and fairness of the electoral process, limit the corrupting influence of private wealth in public elections, and guarantee the dependence of elected officials on the people alone by taking action, 
which may include the establishment of systems of public financing for elections, the imposition of requirements to ensure the disclosure of contributions and expenditures made to influence the outcome of public elections by candidates, sorry for that extra breath, individuals and associations of individuals, and the imposition of content-neutral limitations on all such contributions and expenditures. Mike, that's longer than many of the amendments to the, con- to the Constitution. Can you parse it? Uh, first of all, would it be effective in overturning Citizens United, and how would it intersect if it passed with existing First Amendment protections. So, first let me say that uh, this is a much more sophisticated effort than a lot of the proposals to overrule Citizens United and really to overrule the uh, portions of the Supreme Court's campaign finance jurisprudence that protect uh, contributions as a form of uh, freedom of speech. Uh, and uh, the reason it's longer and more complicated is because uh, Sanders and the people advising him on this uh, understood that you can't just say corporations aren't people or money isn't speech because that uh, leaves open a whole host of other questions. Um, having said that, I think that uh, this probably would overturn the result in Citizens United. Um, but it's not obvious where the stopping point is. Uh, The problem uh, really is one of how far upstream do you go from the election. So, for example, what about independent expenditures by uh, corporate financed institutions, corporations themselves, very wealthy individuals, right? Um, if they're, uh, it, you know, you take it outside the campaign period, there can still be uh, lots of an influ- lots of influence of money on politics. Um, the the general experience, I think, with campaign finance regulation is that uh, even when the court upholds the regulation, uh, Congress will pass a restriction. Uh, it might limit some effects of money on campaigning for one election cycle. And then the campaigns and their lawyers, who are very clever, figure out a way to get around it, and then Congress tries to close the next loophole. And that was the experience even before Citizens United. Uh, And so the question of whether that game is worth playing, I think, depends on whether you think the influence of money on elections is corrupting, uh, whether you think uh, there's anything that can really be done about it, um, and whether, uh, in the end, you're going to draw these lines. So I, I think that of the amendments I've proposed that I've seen, this is one of the best in that it, it really tries to make clear the authority that's being given. Uh, but I suspect that if this got adopted, since it doesn't repeal the First Amendment, the court would end up just drawing a somewhat different line between where Congress's power to regulate campaign finance ends and freedom of speech begins. Many thanks for that. Ilya, would the Democracy for People Amendment, if it passed, be construed by the court to overturn Citizens United? And more broadly, is the First Amendment amendable? I have to confess that as a law student, I wrote a uh, energetic uh, little note saying <clears throat> that the f- proposed flag burning amendment would have been unconstitutional because if the right 
to speech is a natural right granted by God, then government and is unalienable, then the people can't alienate it even by constitutional amendment. That's obviously a, a minority view to say the least, but is there something about the First Amendment that cannot be changed by subsequent amendments, even if they pass? I don't think so. I mean, the, the, when you're amending the Constitution, you're amending the Constitution. By definition, a constitutional amendment can't be unconstitutional. Uh, I would imagine that courts would strive to read uh, constitutional amendments together so as to prevent um, uh, uh, cabining uh, one or, or another uh, as much as possible. Not a constitutional avoidance, but a, I don't know, a constitutional confluence canon, if you will. But, you know, we had prohibition and then we had repeal of prohibition. We could repeal the First Amendment altogether. Uh, you know, that, that might go against certain natural law principles, but as far as the Constitution goes, as far as positive law goes, I think that would be feasible. Uh, would uh, this proposed amendment repeal Citizens United? Gosh, you know what? Uh, when I was listening to you read all that, uh, that sounded like an election manifesto, quite understandably, uh, more than some sort of uh, legal uh, language uh, or, or, or guidance for courts. I think courts could do whatever they wanted with that, frankly. I think Congress could do whatever it wanted with that. Uh, um, uh, probably, uh, I mean, again, it, it's so open-ended, and there are a lot of uh, very uh, uh, words and phrases there uh, that are very broad. So um, I think that would give a lot of uh, uh, leeway to uh, willful uh, judges or uh, congressmen in the first place. And perhaps uh, at this point, uh, I should have maybe said this at the very beginning, but my personal view at the end of the day is that what's really needed to amend the Constitution is to add uh, at the end of every sentence or every provision the words, and we mean it. And that would just <laughs> get us back to uh, what we, uh, uh, the original public understanding, of course. Great. That is a, a, a succinct and uh, practical proposal. Uh, we're going to turn now to the right to vote. Uh, former Maryland governor and Democratic candidate Mike O'Malley has proposed a right-to-vote amendment, and I'm going to read the text of that because it's a lot shorter. It says, uh, Every citizen of the United States who is of legal voting age shall have the fundamental right to vote in any public election held in the jurisdiction in which the citizen resides. And then Section 2, which uh, appears in other constitutional amendments, says Congress shall have the power to enforce and implement this article by appropriate legislation. Mike, would the right-to-vote amendment, if it passed, uh, be effective in overturning uh, Supreme Court decisions like Shelby County, uh, which uh, questioned Congress's power to subject uh, states to federal oversight? And would it uh, prevent the passage of recent uh, 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 voter ID laws and uh, uh, cutbacks on early registration and so forth? I'm going to give a very succinct answer, and then I'll elaborate on it. No. <laughs> um, the... The Supreme Court jurisprudence in the equal protection area already says that the right to vote is a fundamental right. Um, that means it doesn't mean that you have a right to vote for everything. So, for example, in some states, the position of attorney general is appointed by the governor, and other states as an election for that person. That's not a violation of the right to vote if it's an appointed official. What what but but if there's an election, then the court set the court's jurisprudence says. Uh, people who uh, get, get to vote in that. That's a fundamental right, and any distinctions have to be strictly scrutinized. So Section 1, uh, to my mind, simply uh, restates what is already a principle in the court's jurisprudence under the, the Equal Protection Clause. Section 2 
um, looks like it's something new, right? It's giving power to Congress, but Congress has that power with respect to the 14th Amendment by Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. And insofar as you're worried about race discrimination, like in a case like uh, Shelby County against Holder, um, Section 2 of the 15th Amendment says that Congress has the power to implement the 15th Amendment, which forbids race discrimination uh, with respect to voting. The Supreme Court in Shelby County uh, said that what Congress did was not sufficiently closely tied to the problem of race discrimination. There wasn't, in other words, an infringement on the fundamental right to vote that justified the uh, the Voting Rights Act as it was uh, configured in, in Section 4. Um, but the you know maybe they were wrong. I, I happen to think that they ought to have given Congress more deference there. But this language and structure mimics what we have now. And so if the courts are not finding a sufficiently broad right to vote under the existing 14th and 15th Amendments and case law, I don't see why they would do anything different if this uh, amendment were adopted. Ilya, uh, Mike gave us a quick answer. Do you agree or not that Mike O'Malley's right to vote amendment would uh, effectively overturn Shelby County and give states uh, less authority to uh, impose barriers to the ballot? I completely agree with uh, Mike's analysis. Uh, the The right to vote is uh, more than implicit in the Constitution. That is, it's not just kind of this background uh, law or power. It's uh, referred to uh, obliquely uh, several times, uh, kind of like the federal power of eminent domain. Um, the Constitution doesn't give uh, the federal government the power of eminent domain, and yet the Fifth Amendment says that... Uh, if the government takes your property uh, without just compensation, that's a, that's a violation uh, of your constitutional right. Um, so similarly here, as Mike said, the 14th and 15th Amendment protect the right to vote. Um, uh, the Supreme Court, precisely why we have all these cases, is to look at whether uh, uh, courts are considering whether there is uh, racial disenfranchisement or denial of the, of the right to vote for some other uh, reasons. Um, the, the, this, the, the, the O'Malley Amendment doesn't say voter ID is not allowed. It said you can't uh, uh, prohibit the right to vote, or the right to vote is, a, is, a, is an important right. Well, that's precisely that's begging the question as far as the courts are concerned. They're looking at whether different states' uh, voter ID regimes, for example, whether that is an undue burden, uh, as the Supreme Court has laid out uh, uh, in terms of uh, which kinds of voter ID programs are allowed and which are not. And that's why you have rulings going in different ways. Uh, all of these election administration uh, rules uh, are not designed to uh, take away people's votes or, or what have you. They're designed to administer elections in the esteemed judgment of the various states. Uh, and uh, courts uh, look at whether that's uh, any of those do infringe on the right to vote. And if they do, then then they'll be struck down. But so, so this particular amendment, uh, I don't think does anything. It's, uh, it's just uh, uh, election rhetoric. Great. All right, we're going to take up one last issue and then have closing arguments, and that issue is same-sex marriage. After the Obergefell decision striking down same-sex marriage bans, uh, several Republican candidates decried the outcome and talked about the need to countermand the decision. One of the most promising proposals comes from Senator Mike Lee, it's called the First Amendment Defense Act, and it says the following, quote, The federal government shall not take any discriminatory action against a person wholly or partially on the basis 
that such person believes or acts in accordance with a religious belief or moral conviction that marriage is or should be recognized as the union of one man and one woman or that sexual relations are properly reserved to such a marriage. Mike, what is Senator Lee trying to do here? Uh, what kind of religious exemptions is he trying to create? And are they consistent with the Obergefell decision, or, or might the Supreme Court strike down the First Amendment Defense Act as inconsistent with the fundamental rights recognized in Obergefell? So first you have to understand that this, if it's an act, right, then it's not going to amend the Constitution. If there is a conflict, uh, unlike in some of the proposed amendments we're talking about here, if there's a conflict between Obergefell, which construes the Constitution, and an act, the Constitution is going to prevail. So what the act can do, um, then, is to provide uh, religious shields for people uh, who would not be violating anybody else's constitutional right to marry, um, but don't want to participate. Um, to some extent, you might see this as a kind of attempt to relitigate the 1997 Supreme Court case of City of Bernie against Flores, which invalidated the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act insofar as it applied to states and localities. Um, the, I think it's already the case that a, someone um, who claims that a federal statute is inconsistent with their religion insofar as it makes them participate in a same-sex marriage they don't want to, uh, might have a claim under the federal RIFRA. Uh, with respect to state and local laws, right, public accommodations laws that extend to sexual orientation, for example, it's not clear to me that the federal government has that power, given that the court said it didn't have that power in the city of Bernie case. Uh, so the the short answer is I, I think he's trying to say that there ought to be broad religious exceptions from participating in same-sex marriages, and that's going to be permissible so long as the uh, participation uh, is not essential for somebody else to actually get government approval by marriage, right, so for private actors and so forth. Uh, but it may run into this obstacle that Congress lacks the affirmative power with respect to uh, laws and policies that are going to be implemented at the state and local level. Fascinating. Ilya, do you agree with Mike's analysis about the First Amendment Defense Act uh, or not? And what effect do you think it would have? Would the, how would the Supreme Court construe it? Um, I think I probably mostly agree. Um, I, I, again, there there is some... Um, open-endedness here in the sense that what do you do not with the uh, Kentucky clerk who's uh, shutting down the entire office to marriage licenses, uh, but with a law like um, North Carolina's uh, where an individual clerk can recuse and then as long as uh, the license still gets generated, um, uh, there's no, no harm, no foul, essentially. It's kind of a, uh, an accommodation. Um, you know, this is uh, raises the distinction between public and private action. Uh, I think, and I think both conservatives and progressives lose lose sight in that, thinking that the same principle applies whether it's the government giving out marriage licenses or whether it's individual businesses deciding how to conduct their business. Uh, I think those are very different, or should be considered um, different things. Uh, the way that this plays into the election campaign, I think, is through the role of Supreme Court appointments. 
Uh, I don't think there's so much uh, arguing about gay marriage on the stump. Uh, that's um, that that legal issue is is decided, but the religious liberty aspect certainly, uh, and uh, what kind of judges to appoint. That that's how this goes through. But I do think that going forward, this is possibly the last election we'll be talking about gay marriage. Um, that as we move forward, the dynamics are going to be very different from Roe v. Wade, where even if the legal decision isn't fully uh, uh, accepted for various uh, process reasons, uh, that demographically speaking, more and more of the country will be uh, accepting of uh, same-sex marriage. Wonderful. All right, gentlemen, it is time uh, after this great uh, discussion for closing arguments. Amending the Constitution is extremely difficult, as we've discussed. How should uh, we, the people, deal with these important questions about birthright citizenship, same-sex marriage, and campaign finance, given the difficulty of amending the Constitution? Uh, is it possible to address them through public discourse and litigation? Do we need to focus on Supreme Court appointments, or are constitutional amendments, in fact, plausible ways of achieving constitutional change? Mike. Uh, so before I answer that question, I just want to uh, go back to the First Amendment Defense Act for a second because I just looked it up online, and apparently it's meant only to apply to the federal government. So I want to correct what I said before. Uh, therefore, there's not an affirmative power problem with it. It may be unnecessary, may not do anything, but it doesn't have that problem. Okay, on to your question. Uh, I think the answer uh, is all of the above. Uh, that is, it's, it's very uh, common to say that uh, the Supreme Court and litigation generally takes issues away from the people. Uh, I think that's a, a somewhat naive view of American politics. Um, people who study the court, uh, as political scientists, know the court is uh, influenced by public opinion indirectly, but to a great degree. Um, the people who bring lawsuits, whether conservative or liberal, to challenge the legal status quo, do not believe that courts are going to solve all of their problems. They typically bring lawsuits as part of a broader strategy uh, that includes public education, that includes a, a uh, legislative component, uh, and that is using the litigation possibly to win rights in the courts, but also um, to influence people. Uh, there's, there's some great work by social scientists about how uh, people can bring lawsuits, lose the case, but still the the mobilization behind the lawsuit then plays a role in in shaping public opinion. I think constitutional amendments fit within this pattern. There are thousands of constitutional amendments that get proposed. Virtually none of them get enacted. That doesn't necessarily mean that proposing them was pointless, uh, because often the proposal of a constitutional amendment is aimed at affecting the overall discourse, uh, the sort of uh, political uh, atmosphere, and it may end up pushing the courts, may end up pushing Congress, state legislators, etc. So I think we ought to think about constitutional amendments as not simply an effort to change the meaning of the Constitution uh, directly, but as part of this much broader strategy that political and social movement actors employ to affect public policy. Many thanks for that. Ilya, constitutional change, should it come from amendments, the people, the courts, judicial appointments, or some combination of all of those? Um, well, a combination. Uh, well, constitutional changes shouldn't come from anyone other than constitutional amendments, but 
Um, certainly courts uh, are meant to interpret the Constitution, and if the people think that the courts are wrong, they can overturn them. Although I, I will note that the Supreme Court is very careful, even before John Roberts, uh, to try not to get too far ahead or behind uh, public opinion. And that's why constitutional amendments that are proposed specifically to overturn a particular Supreme Court ruling are not going to get very far, because you simply don't have uh, the constitutional supermajorities of the people uh, on one side uh, uh, enough to, to, to pass a constitutional amendment. So I think in the future, if, uh, if and when we see more amendments that are actually making headway, uh, it's going to be about some other uh, organic uh, trend in society that's very unpopular, uh, rather than uh, a response to a Supreme Court opinion. I, I don't know what that would be. Um, uh, it's not something that, that, that uh, this is a, an unknown unknown, I suppose, to use the Rumsfeldian term. Uh, but this is an important issue to have because the people need to understand that uh, the Constitution uh, and the people who uh, enacted the Constitution aren't, aren't perfect. Uh, and uh, uh, it it's ultimately rests with the people that if they don't like their governing document, they, they can and should uh, change it. Um, I'll leave it there. Thank you, Mike Dorf and Ilya Shapiro, for an unusually illuminating discussion of the candidates and the Constitution. We've had no panoply ads on this broadcast, but Ilya did put in a plug for Justice Scalia's favorite ale, Jiggery Pokery, but I'm going to put in a plug for something really exciting that's coming up. So I said that Ilya and Mike are members of our Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, which is co-chaired by the heads of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. And on September 17th, Constitution Day, the National Constitution Center will launch our new interactive constitution, where we've asked candidates and scholars nominated by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society to write about every clause of the Constitution, describing both what they agree about and what they disagree about. This is a thrilling nonpartisan educational tool. We're going to start with the first 15 amendments on Constitution Day in a great launch uh, attended by Justice Breyer and David Coleman, the head of the College Board, which is making the new interactive Constitution the centerpiece of the new AP History and Government exam. We are so excited about this tool and can't wait to share it with you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed at constitutionctr. Send your questions, comments, and suggestions about the show to editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and rely entirely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this great podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org slash membership to learn more. And of course, please join us again next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.